0: Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we talk about all things science-y. My name's Stu and on this week's show I'm going to have a little chat about the Cassini probe who's coming to the end of its life up there around Saturn swinging around uh, and they've got a big finale planned for the Cassini probe. They're going to crash it into Saturn. (laughs)
1: Whoa. <laughs> oh, that's a good reason for that, though.
0: Oh, that, yeah. Well, that, that can't just leave it lying around up there. Yeah, it'll, yeah. it'll get uh, you know, get in the way of other probes, possibly.
2: I'm looking forward to hearing about this because I want to know what it's like. Is it going to be taking measurements on its on its way into crash- landing or is it going to be taking photos like what or is it just going to be going whatever
0: they can squeeze out of it but uh yeah i'll I'll talk about what it has been doing as well so yeah a bit on that later in the show claire what have you got for us
2: um well after your story last week Stu, about um methods that uh athletic organizations use to test for um uh being female or letting female participants into um, events. It got me thinking about um sex determination in general. So you know you've got the XX and the XY chromosomes in humans. Yep. But it's actually much more of a spectrum than that in humans. And then also how sex is determined in other animals. So I'm gonna be looking at that.
0: Interesting. And Chris, what have you got well, in store?
1: I am going to be speaking to some special guests. Um, I'm speaking to astrophysicist Alan Duffy and journalist and podcaster Cara Santa Maria about their show, which they're calling Beyond the Eye, uh, which is coming to Melbourne uh, on the 17th of November this year.
2: Is that I-E-Y-E or Yeah,
1: E-Y-E. It's not like some sort of, you know, metaphysical Metaphysical (laughs) about, about yourself. I'm assuming it's to do with like forms of astronomy, but they're going to tell me what it's all about so you we'll all find out together what this is all about
0: fantastic well we can't keep an eye on that but keep an ear out for it anyway A robot who's travelled 6.6 billion kilometres.
2: <laughs> um, Tired?
0: <laughs> Boyer boy is arms tired. No, it's actually, if you said Cassini, you're 100% correct. So the Cassini Huygens probe was actually launched all the way back in 1997. So last millennium even.
2: Wow. Nine, 97. The yeah. year Princess died died. Yeah, I don't think the they're related. Things. You don't... <laughs> You never, knows, do you? you
0: never know, Stu. Um, you never know. So, for <laughs> so the year that Hanson released, mbop.
2: <laughs> These are things we remember from 1997. That's what you remember from
0: ninety-seven, Okay. Um, so, in yeah, so it was launched in 1997 and it took seven years to get to Saturn, which is where it is now. Um, and it flew past Venus and Jupiter on the way. It actually didn't just fly past them. It used the gravity of Venus and Jupiter to speed it up so it could get to Saturn Did it Saturn do like quicker. a...
2: Like a slingshot
0: Gravity slingshot, yep um, Did on Earth as well So it actually went to Venus and then came back to Earth And then went to Jupiter and then went to Saturn Really? Yeah, so it was a sort of a Ping pong ball Yeah, it was uh, a yeah, like pinball Pinball Yeah Pinball um, And so it, as it flew past Venus and Jupiter It took some pretty amazing pictures of them And sent them back to us And then went into orbit around Saturn in 2004 and in 2004, also, the Huygens probe separated from the Cassini orbiter and landed on the surface of Titan and sent back the first pictures from the surface of that satellite. And that is still the furthest landing of any Earth-launched spacecraft ever made, which is pretty wow. pretty cool. Um And then the Cassini stayed in orbit around Saturn and has been sending back pictures and other information to Earth ever since. So they named Cassini after an Italian astronomer who discovered Saturn's rings. And the Cassini orbiter was sent to get a closer look at those rings so we could actually have a better understanding of what they are and also what they look like really close up because it is really close to the rings. Um, But as well as getting a closer look at the rings sini also discovered seven new moons around Saturn that we hadn't seen before.
1: Are these like the shepherd moons that
0: keep the rings in check? Some of them are, and some of them were just kind of hidden, but yeah, they're they're sort of making the gravity fields that are keeping those rings in place. Um, but so yeah, so these seven moons were actually unknown. But then when they saw uh, all these seven moons, they actually looked back over some old photographs from the Voyager 2 mission and realised they already had a photo of one of them uh, called Pallene and they didn't notice that it was a moon when Voyager sent that photo back. But they sort of went, oh, look, we've already got a picture of this one from from an (laughs) earlier – here's one we took earlier.
2: It's like um, astronomical CSI.
0: Yeah, like forensic Forensic uh, moon discoveries. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So the primary mission of Cassini was only meant to last four years, so it should have finished ages ago. Wow. Um, but it's been extended a couple of times, um, and Cassini has exceeded expectations and continued to function well beyond its expected lifespan. I don't know. If I if I um, finish something four years later, I don't think I'd be exceeding expectations. Yeah, but... It was only meant to do. Oh, okay, okay. So it's done, more than, it it's done more than it was. It's done more than it was meant to do. It wasn't late. It wasn't like tardy. No, 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 no. Its four-year mission okay. was the original Last and it's minute. and
2: it's up to twenty years now.
0: Well, twenty years after it launched, but it, so it was oh, meant. Okay. It, its original it mission a, should have finished in two thousand and eight. So okay. it's nine years later, and it's still still doing stuff. Although it did actually. Uh, lose some of the photos that the Huygens probe sent to it from Titan.
2: Cassini. Be-
0: because of a <laughs> software error. Oh. So it was actually something wrong with the software. I think, you know, got the blue screen of death on its, uh, on its <laughs> Well, It would have been, that, um, would have been sp- launched back.
2: Spinning wheel. of <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah,
1: yeah. laughs> oh, no, I'm just like, if it was launched back in the 90s, um, then maybe it was launched, like, with film camera and it lost on the way to the camera shop or something like that to get it developed.
2: Which' um, yeah, it was running which, Windows 3?: Yeah, which <laughs> Windows operating system was it back then? <laughs>
0: so the information it has collected has been wide and varied, including measuring the rotation of Saturn itself, which they have done from Earth, but they just wanted to see up close if it was you know, if it matched up. Um, the way they did that is by measuring radio frequencies that are emitted from Saturn itself, because there's no surface objects that they can see to sort of measure how it's turning. Um, what they did find is that the the radio transmissions or the radio emissions that they measured when they've previously done it have actually shifted in the planet somehow. So they're actually coming from a point at a different point on the planet so the uh, rotation seems to be different but it's actually that the, the, the points they're measuring have moved so they're coming at a different um, repeating rate. Um, and also, they even tested Einstein's theory of relativity by testing the effect of the sun's gravity on radio signals between the Earth and Cassini to see if they would be altered by passing close by the sun, which they are, and they are very close to what they would have expected. So it's also taken close-up pictures of a number of Saturn's moons, and it's taken pictures of the surface of Titan, which showed gigantic lakes of liquid methane, which has led some people to speculate that maybe there could be, you know, potentially life on moons like titan there's you know organic chemicals basically um not that methane is evidence of life on titan because methane exists in the universe anyway just as a as a chemical without life creating it but uh the fact that there's organic chemicals means there could be organic chemistry which means there could be life potentially um, and in 2013, Cassini even took a global selfie, so it pointed back at the Earth to get a photograph that included Earth, Mars, Venus, and Saturn in the same photo, and NASA actually asked everyone on Earth to smile for the camera on that day back in 2013. <laughs> Those wacky Did you do that, I I missed the memo, <laughs> so I didn't know. Um, but Cassini is coming to the end of its operational lifespan, and several options were debated about how to retire the trusty robot. Including slinging it off towards Uranus or Uranus, depending how you say it. <laughs> um, but they decided you either one,
1: urine or anus in that yeah, planet you name. Can't, you can't carry. really
0: you can't really win with that one. Um, but what they have decided to do is to send it into Saturn's atmosphere. Uh, so the effect of the gas giant on the robot will be basically to vaporize it in a matter of seconds. Oh dear! So. Um, It'll be traveling at 112,000 kilometers an hour as it passes multiple times through the gap between the rings and the the atmosphere of Saturn itself, Mm -hmm. um, which they've never actually had a close look at. So they assume there's nothing in that gap. If there is stuff, if there's even little particles of dust, it could actually destroy the probe before it gets into the atmosphere. So isn't one of
1: the reasons they're doing that because of the chance that on some of Saturn's moons there could be life? And you don't want an Earth thing floating around and possibly crashing into a moon and contaminating ruin- it. Yeah, contaminating it essentially. Mm. Yeah, but if to destroy it, then yeah, leave it open for but de- they, doing you know, damage.
0: The, they they will obviously collect any data that that the yeah can send as, as back well as yeah. it's falling into the atmosphere because we really they, they really don't know. What's in that atmosphere they, yeah. they know that there's a There's a probably a solid core in there But they don't even know how big that is So it'll uh, The measurements it takes as it's falling Will actually give them some information So just I guess uh, You know A little thank you To the Cassini and Huygens probes Who have boldly gone Where no one has gone before Science The final frontier
2: mm. These
0: are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before.
2: So Stu, your story last week, um, it was about methods that um, you know the Olympics and other um, athletic and sports organisations use to test women as as to whether they can actually participate in a, in events as women, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that yeah, there was some there has been some you know problems with the testing methods that they've had, and they really haven't found something that's a particularly useful way of assessing whether someone can compete as a woman in women's events.
2: Yeah. And um, that's really interesting because when people think of, you know, um, one way to test um, uh, women, it's like, okay, well, you can do a genetic test. And um, when you think about males and females in the animal kingdom, um, you might think about sex chromosomes. So, you've got your XX and the XY sex chromosomes. Now, um, the XX chromosomes being the ones that are typically associated with the female sex, and the XY associated with male sex. Um, but, like most things in nature, it's much more diverse and complicated than this simple binary sexual determination, um, and something that I think um, we should probably be celebrating a little bit more. Um, so, let's have um, a look initially about humans. Let's start with humans. So humans are born, uh, most often born with 46 chromosomes. So you've got um, 23 from your mum and 23 from your dad. Um, And in these chromosomes are all the genetic material you'll ever need. Now, one of these pairs is called the sex chromosomes. um, And these are the um, X and the Y sex chromosome. So you get an X chromosome from your mum, and you either get an X or a Y chromosome from your dad. So, in um, most cases, your sex will be determined, um, yeah, by your dad. So, males so are responsible... It's the, it's the genetic
0: material you get from the male parent that yeah. determines which sex you end up with.
2: Yeah, in most cases. Right. Um, so, yeah. So, males are responsible for genetically determining sex as each sperm cell will either, have, either be carrying an X... Or a Y. Right. Um, but this isn't always the case um, We that we are born with two sex chromosomes. You've got um, research shows that a few births in every thousand, you've got some individuals who are born with a single sex chromosome. So this means that instead of having two X chromosomes or an X and a Y, they might just have um, a single X or a single Y. Um so uh, and also some people may have more sex chromosomes than two. So you might have people that have three X chromosomes um, or one X and two Y or two X and one Y. Um, so there's quite a lot of variation. And, um, you know, just simply having two X and an X and a Y doesn't necessarily determine um, how um, your like what your bi- biological sex is going to be.
0: So do, how do they manifest physically as <clears throat> um the physical characteristics of the people with those extra ones or the the fewer ones than
2: Yeah, well it 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 really depends on um on what chromosomes they have and how um like it's 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 um, dependent on I guess um the hormones and then the pathways that those hormones then Um, interact and then what sort of, um, um, what the sexual organs end up. So, uh, yeah, I don't know.
0: (laughs) It could be a range of things, basically. It could be a range of things. Exactly.
2: So, so there are some males who were born um, XX because they have been, um, hang on. Oh, yeah. All right. So, some males are born XX as well, um, but because they're like, but they end up as males because um, part of the sex determining region on the Y chromosome is translocated onto the X chromosome. So, you've got um, a male that is presenting as XX, but um, part of the Y chromosome is being put onto an X chromosome. And then you've got some females who are born as X,Y, and that's because you might have some mutations in the Y chromosome. So it's really sort of complicated.
0: So it's not as simple as just X Y and, no. and. And are there are also people who are not receptive to some hormones as well, I think, who exist. So like they, they may they may have the, the, the Y chromosome, but they're their body's not receptive to testosterone, for example, so therefore they don't develop as males.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, as you say, when it comes to genetic sex, it is much more complicated um, than we're probably taught at school. Um, Not only are there genetic females who are XX and genetic males who are XY, but rather, yeah, like you say, you've got this range of chromosome complements and you've got different hormone balances um, and bodily variations that are going to be determining sex, um, so that's humans, and then the rest of the animal kingdom is even more diverse and interesting when it comes to genetic sex determination. So grasshoppers, cockroaches, and other insects have a similar chromosomal setup to us. Um, I don't know how that makes you feel, but they do. Oh, I'm
0: fine with that. You're fine with they, that. They, they can share. They can share their chromosomal setup. <laughs>
2: So, um, females are XX and produce eggs that contain um, an X chromosome. But the males, um, instead of being XY, uh, they um, they have no sex chromosome. Or oh, they, they have one X chromosome and then no other chromosome. So, if you're a female cockroach, then you'll be XX. But if you're a male cockroach, you'll be XO, where the O Is is the present is nothing? Is is the absence of of a second chromosome?
0: So they're really just X. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah, but they're XO.
0: That's how that's how the notation goes.
2: That's how the notation goes. Yeah. 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 Just to show that there is the absence of something that is present in in the um, in the female. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another type of sex determination is via the female instead of via the male sperm, like humans. So birds, insects um, like butterflies, frogs, and snakes, and some species of fish have this type of sex determination. So um, in this um, in this sex determination, female gametes, um, or female eggs, I guess, can either contain a Z chromosome or a Y chromosome, and male gametes only contain a Z chromosome. So females are ZY, like. The equivalent would be XY in... um, Oh, sorry. So for these species, females are ZW and males are ZZ.
1: Right. So it's just kind of flipped.
2: Yeah, it's just sort of flipped. Yeah.
1: It's funny that insects have a mixture of both.
2: It is, isn't it? But I guess insects, you know, are just as diverse as... Um, vertebrates and... Well, they're
0: more diverse than vertebrates. There's more insects than anything else. Yeah. So that, they have the original version of everything just and we're just copying agenda. them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> You're very um, backbone-centred. Yeah,
1: I am, I am. You are backbone-centred. V- vertebrate-centric. Yeah. yeah. I, I am chordate-preferred,
0: preferred, <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, but, and lastly, because it is so cool, you've got um, environmental sex determination. So... Turtles and crocodiles, um, in both of these species, sex is determined by the temperature um, of the eggs at a certain time in incubation. So at a certain time in incubation, um, uh, when the eggs are incubated above a certain temperature, those eggs will develop into one sex, um, while the eggs incubated below a certain temperature will develop into the other sex.
0: I've read about this, and this is actually maybe going to cause some problems if the climate... Gets warmer, that yes. all of the eggs will turn into one sex and not the other.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty problematic. If you can imagine a turtle going to nest on a beach, um, and that beach is now four degrees hotter than it was twenty years ago, then um, and you've got a pretty narrow range um, that of sex determination. Then um, yeah, unfortunately, you're probably going to get a skewed. Um, Breakup between the sexes of, of the of the um, turtles.
0: Yeah, so rather than being 50-50 or whatever it is in turtles, it'll yeah, end up it'll all be being... Yeah, it'll be skewed. Yeah. Or well, yeah. there'll be selection pressure to lay their eggs in different spots or something yeah, like that. Or yeah, at,
2: or at different times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But that, I mean, that's going to take time for those turtles mm. to adapt to that. Um, yeah, so really in nature, um, the genetic sex of indiv- individuals comes about through so many different ways. Each are quite fascinating complicated and hugely diverse
0: across Australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science
1: okay you're listening to lost in science my name is chris and on the line today i have melbourne-based astrophysicist alan duffy and u.s journalist and podcaster cara santamaria this November, Alan and Cara will be presenting a show in Melbourne called Beyond the Eye, and I'm talking to them to find out more about it. Welcome to Lost in Science, Alan and Cara. Oh, thanks for
3: having us. Thanks for having us.
1: Okay, now I guess the obvious question is, what is the show Beyond the Eye all about?
4: All right, here's, here's my take on it. Using our scientific backgrounds, our master physics, Cara is a bit more sort of general science and psychology, dare I say it, and perhaps we have two different interpretations, but in my, in my field, seeing really is believing. And yet we know that there are many instances where what you see really isn't what you get. There are weird optical illusions happening thanks to our atmosphere. That's why the stars twinkle. There's um, optical illusions in the depths of space thanks to warping of space-time itself. All of these things are, they kind of trick the eye, but they reveal a lot of science in the process. So certainly my take on things was to have a bit of fun and explain how things aren't really as you see them. But if you approach it with a bit more of a scientific mindset, you can actually uncover incredible secrets of the universe.
3: Absolutely. I mean, all that I would really add to that is, it's really what Alan said. He comes from an astrophysics background. My background is in psychology and neuroscience. And so there are two, um, actually, there are many different ways to approach this question of how do we know what we know? And how do we know if what we think we know is actually true? And so being able to talk about some of these optical illusion, some of this kind of apophenia, as it were, from both perspectives will help the people who are there at the event get a better understanding of how our minds often play tricks on us.
1: Uh, Now, you threw in the word apophenia there. Can you just explain what that is briefly?
3: Oh, absolutely. So, apophenia, it's, it's an interesting term, and it really has to do with the broad tendency that people have to find patterns in random information. So there are all sorts of cognitive biases that we fall victim to, like the gambler's fallacy. We also tend to see faces in things that aren't actually there. We tend to hear our name even when somebody doesn't say it, or sometimes you'll hear like a phantom phone ringing. And that tendency that we have can be really utilized to our advantage if we are, you know, designing fun optical illusions, but it can also set us back a lot of times when we are trying to come to a reasoned understanding of whether or not what we see is actually true.
1: Right. Now, this is an interesting time to be talking about this, I guess, because there is a lot of feeling of that science is under threat, and I know you're both big promoters of science. How do you think this message of you can't always trust what you see with your own eyes fits into this, this approach of trusting science, I guess?
3: You want to take that first, uh, Alan? Yeah, I got a lot to say be. living here in the yeah. United States, so I'll let you take a stab at it.
4: Yeah, look, I think I'm coming from a, a much happier place at the moment. <laughs> Australia is very much more um, still, still uh, in favour of evidence-based uh, decision making. People tend to trust expertise and experts still, and that's encouraging. But yeah, we're look, we, we Australia typically follows where America leads, so I think it's important that we keep. This kind of conversation alive where you're getting experts out into the community, we're opening up our science and really having a discussion where possible, just that we don't fall victim to this issue that that seems to bedevil us at the moment as a society, more generally in the the world, where people just do not trust expertise. And we've sort of devalued years of, of study where people feel that they, um, you know, one source they find shared on Facebook is as valuable as, you know, an entire journal, uh, you know, a nature publications or or whatever it may be on on a specific topic. So look, I go out there to try to remind people in Australia of all the cool things that are actually happening in the universe more broadly, but also specifically with science uh, and STEM and uh, hope that my little contribution will prevent us going perhaps down where the US has led which is, I think, a segue where Kara can take over.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an uphill battle here in the United States. And I try to maintain some perspective and remember that, you know, I think the arrow of time really does point to progress. And right now we are in a big hiccup in the United States, but we struggle as a society with understanding what sources are legitimate sources? You know, we have a big problem right now with quote unquote fake news, both in the actual sense and also in the Donald Trump tweet sense. Uh-huh. Um, and so it's important for science communicators here in the States and also at large to do our part to, I think, help people cut through the noise and try to make sense of the data that we can actually use. To make better evidence-based decisions.
1: Okay, you mentioned Donald Trump there. Now, speaking of big round orange things, I wanted to
3: uh,
1: <laughs> I wanted to throw uh, I guess an astronomical illusion at you and see what you have to say about it. So, the moon looking very large at the horizon, just just as a, an example of the kind of thing that might be sort of beyond the eye, is that a, a physics thing or is that a psychology thing that the moon looks so big when it's down low? Oh,
3: that's uh, that's a physics thing. Alan, you want to oh, take Oh, I was
4: totally going to disagree. Oh, oh this no! is interesting. <laughs> yeah, look, this is this has been known. This the moon illusion has been known uh, since at least, or at least, uh, has been recorded since the ancient Greeks' time. I'm sure it was uh, an issue long before then as well. Which is to say, the moon, as it rises above the horizon, looks far larger. Than later on in the night when it's high up in the sky, but you can easily show this is not a, a physics thing because you can stick your thumb out, give the horizon a thumbs up. Um, so really, you know, stretch out your arm and look down your arm, and with your thumb up, see how much of your thumb it takes to cover the moon. And it's about it's about the nail basically will cover the full moon. And then you try that same experiment later on in the night when it's high up and your eyes are telling you it is tiny relative to what you saw when it was rising above the horizon and you look and you see how much of your thumbnail does it take to cover and it will be the exact same, it has not changed in size but psychologically speaking it's, I do this all the time because I still cannot believe it's true because it feels like it's the biggest object you've ever seen when it's rising but it's entirely in the eye, so Cara what do we think about that? (laughs)
3: Well, that's so funny because when I heard him ask about the moon, the, I, I thought that he was asking about why it looks redder at the Hawaii, at the uh, horizon, oh, not why no. it looks larger. And that's the first thing I jumped on was that's physics.
1: But that is physics. That I'm is pretty specific. certain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. It,
3: when it comes to the size of the moon or its apparent size, it really is a good example of how we have adapted to our understanding of the space around us, the world and the universe around us, simply just based on our everyday experience. And when we look up straight up into the sky, we have a general idea of how far away things are. We we understand them to be quite far away. But when we look out at the horizon, we just simply have no reference. And so our brains really do compensate for it. The moon is clearly far away when we look at the at the zenith or at the um, at the horizon. But we force it to look larger because generally speaking, when we look in that direction, things are closer to us. It's so funny how we can make these decisions without even knowing it. And they actually do distort our perception of reality
1: Mm, and which is, I guess, a simple scientific measure. As simple as sticking your thumb out, that's what you need to look at rather than just trusting what your first impressions are.
3: Absolutely. And sometimes it's not that simple, right, to debunk um, as just a a quick and dirty test. Sometimes we actually have to um, develop some visual justifications in order to determine whether or not what we are seeing is really what we're seeing. You know, imagine finding... A face in a pattern we'll look up at the moon there's a man in the moon right but if you look at the moon from a different angle all of a sudden that completely dissipates so sometimes you need another frame of reference or another um, piece of evidence in order to to change your perspective a bit
1: brilliant okay well it sounds like there's a lot of um debunking but as well as a lot of uh, hearty discussion as you two talk about the different perspectives of what science can tell us now where will you be on november 17th this is
4: the athenaeum theater in melbourne Brilliant. So and... Doors open from six. Great. And where can people get tickets to this? Uh, you can head to the Think Inc. Uh, website um, and get it there, or it's on Ticketek, as Brilliant. all good shows often are.
3: Brilliant.
1: <laughs> okay. Well, we will put a, um, a link up on our website as well. That as well. I think um, it's thinkinc.org.au where the ink has got a C in it. Well, look, thank you very much both for joining us, uh, Alan Duffy and Cara Santa Maria. And I look forward to yeah your show in November.
3: Thank you so right. much. You're traveling
4: through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your
0: next stop. Lost in science. So that brings us to the end of another show. Now, we just got a listener get in touch with us to, uh, to inform us that our uh, story on insects recently was um, maybe not as accurate as we'd like. Well,
1: he's not saying it's not accurate. I think it's just a different perspective on it. Um, so this is not just any listener, by the way. This is our, our radio colleague, John, from Bigger.
2: From Edge FM. Edge Big FM. shout out to Edge FM.
1: Anyway, um, so in that we did a story a few weeks ago where we talked about um possibility of declining insect populations around the world, how there are indications in some of the data, as well as anecdotes of people reporting the windshield effect that, you know, back in the day their windshields used to get covered with bugs when they drove it and they don't seem to anymore. Well, John reported that he his car um is indeed still well covered. His windscreen is well covered with bugs whenever he drives. And uh, so maybe in his part of the world, the insects are doing quite well. Well, not the ones that hit his windscreen, at least, anyway.
2: I'm very happy to hear in Began, New South Wales, that the insect populations are doing well. And anybody else um, in the rest of Australia, we would really love to hear how your insect populations are going. Please write to us at lostinsightgmail.com and tell us if you get barraged by insects. When you're driving home from work late at night, or you could, or on, you could, at dusk mostly probably.
1: Yeah, you could tweet us a picture from inside your, your car from the
0: windscreen.
2: Oh, that'd be great. At,
1: to at Lost in Science One, which is our, our Twitter handle.
0: Or you could you know wait till you've stopped driving and do it then. Take a photo of the outside of your car. <laughs> oh
1: territory. yeah, drive, safe driving of course. Yeah don't, yeah, don't
0: don't take pictures while you're driving. Um, we also have Facebook. Yeah, you can also you can also send it through Facebook. We're Lost in Science on three CR. Uh, You can find us on Facebook. Uh, But Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. But if you uh, don't want to talk to us on the social medias, you can just tune in next week when, once again, the team will get Lost in Science.